0: Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome, grace and peace to you.
1: 23, 33 to 43. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the Chosen One. but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel of our Lord.
0: Before I offer my reflection on this, this gospel reading, uh, I'd like to invite us into a practice of presence. So whatever you bring into the room, it could be lots of faith or doubt, it could be lots of joy or sorrow somewhere in between, just try to tap into and connect with how you're really feeling and how you're really thinking, and bring that in the presence of God and one another, and let's seek as a community to open our hearts. Um, this is a moment uh, of the open heart where we can entertain stories, ideas, and uh, try to tap into a sense of God's presence and how God's at work in our life. Um, So let's open our hearts together as best as you know how. Just a moment of silence to open our hearts. God, we thank you for the gift of quiet in our city. We thank you for the peace that it brings. And almost at the same time we sense the peace, we also feel the noise in our own souls and our minds. We pray pray that you'd create space uh, for your thoughts to become our thoughts, for uh, our imagination to be stirred and, and prompted in the direction of love and for us to have fresh eyes to see our lives. We pray that in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone says, Amen. Well, this uh, this weekend was my birthday weekend. On uh, Thank you. Uh, on Friday, I celebrated my 40th birthday, which felt really good. Um, people were asking, like, how do you feel entering your, your 40s? And... I've been telling people I feel really good about it. Like I, I, When I was coming to the twilight of my 20s, I mean, I did have that sense of angst, like I'm in the twilight of my youth, but I was kind of ready for my 30s. And my 30s, it was like all my energy was toward building something and it was exciting. And um, now I'm at the end of my 30s, I'm actually really looking forward to my 40s and leaning in to the next decade with a little more wisdom. Uh, and self-awareness, so that feels like a gift, and speaking of gifts, I I was actually gifted uh, by my my family, my extended family, this watch, which I was really excited about, and um, it was really special for me, and uh, one of my kids sort of like mocked and jeered that, uh, well, maybe now I'll be able to keep track of my sermon time, Um, so so we'll see how that goes this morning, huh? Today's uh, Christ the King Sunday. And that means it's the, the end of uh, the Christian calendar. It's the end of the Christian year, and our church follows, with you know, thousands and thousands of churches around the world, a sense of uh, story and a way of tracking time. Um, we believe that humans are storied creatures. We we just that's what we do. We're story making machines. And we're always going to be living out some story. We're always going to be governed by some story. Our imagination will always be swept up by some story. And the Christian year is a way for us uh, to tell the story of Christ in a way that sort of shapes the the life and the story and the values of Christ in our bones. Um, So half the year we take uh, to look at the, the story of Jesus specifically, and that begins next week with Advent, where we were like waiting and longing for saving and this thing we call the Messiah and uh, this thing we call Christmas. We remember his birth and then his life and then his road to Jerusalem and his death and his resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. We just take time throughout the year to relive those stories. And then for half of the year, we just uh, pay attention to how God's at work in ordinary life. We call that ordinary time. But now as we come to the end, it's called Christ the King Sunday, and that is to say that we focus on the essence of our faith, the essence of what makes the Christian uh, story and the Christian gospel beautiful. Um, It also was nice that Kanye released an album just in time for the season called Jesus is King. Um, So we appreciate his sensitivity to the church calendar. Um, But when we think of Christ the King Sunday, we're confronted with an immediate problem, which is, Not many of us relate in an emotional way to this idea of king or kingdom. Um, It's not our governing situation. It is somewhat foreign to us. Maybe the closest cultural thing that that a lot of us have to that is the British crown, but that in itself is sort of a, a gesture now, not really a force of power in the world at least geopolitically speaking, still a lot of money there, but we can talk about that in the after, aftermath. Um, but it is a little bit of a foreign idea, this idea of king and kingdom um, to our democratic sensibilities. And on top of that, we think of Christ as king. Uh, we often you know, are, are maybe uh, rubbed the wrong way by this sense of authority coming down on us. You know, maybe through your own experience and spiritual formation, that feels like good news to you. And that's probably because you've had a series of explanations or experiences that have helped you get there. But I think on the whole, in an individualistic society where we prize human freedom and, and human choice, the idea of someone telling us how to live and what to think can feel like bad news. So why do we take a day out of the year? Why do we Put the period on the sentence of the Christian year with this idea of Christ is the king. Well, N.T. Wright, who is probably the Kanye West, uh, never mind, I'm not going to use that analogy, of New Testament scholars. He's, because that won't hold in every way. But what analogies actually hold in every way? I don't know. Um, N.T. Wright, he's he's a great New Testament scholar. One of my favorites. He wrote, um, he's written a ton. I mean, he doesn't have an unpublished thought. But he wrote a book called... um, the moment God became king. And what N.T. Wright says is that these four stories we have in the Bible that we call the Gospels, and that's what the Gospels are, these four stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all are making a singular point in their own way, and that is that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. And he says, quote, it's been slowly dawning on me over the many years that there's a fundamental problem deep at the heart of Christian faith and practice as he has known them. He says, quote, this problem can be summarized quite easily. We've all forgotten what the four gospels are really about. Yes, they're about Jesus. But what exactly are they saying about Jesus? Yes, they're about God. What what precisely are they saying about God? yes they're about the beginnings of what later would become known as christianity but what are they saying about that strange new movement and how do they resource it for its life and work i've therefore come to the conclusion that we need not just a little bit of fine tuning or an adjustment here and there what we need is a fundamental rethink of what the gospels are trying to say and hence about how best we should read them together and individually. The story that the four evangelists tell is the story as in his title, How God Became King. This, he he said, this I discover comes as a surprise to most people and an unwelcome shock to some. It appears, as we saw today, counterintuitive. That is, the claim that God has become king doesn't seem to square with the world as we know it. If God is really king, why is there still cancer? Why are there still tsunamis? Why is there still such tyranny and genocide and child abuse and massive economic corruption? What's more, as we shall see, some people, not least some Christians, appear allergic to the very idea of God becoming or being king. Isn't God as king triumphalist? Doesn't that lead us toward that dreaded word, theocracy? And isn't that one of the problems of our day, not one of our solutions? Questions like that, he says, this is, I'm quoting at length, questions like that are important, but even if the gospel writers had heard us asking them, they would not have backed off from the claim that they were making. To discover why not, and to see what they might have said in reply to such comments, we have to take a deep breath and go back to the beginning. Now, that's N.T. Wright, teeing up for us. The claim that Jesus is king is the main point of the Gospels, but also that that poses some problems. Now, I turned 40 this weekend, and I've been reflecting on why I love Jesus, why I'm committed to following Jesus. Um, Why do I still stick with this faith that was handed to me but I have made my own and now I have some life under my belt and I'm still here. I'm still committed. In fact, I could say honestly at this point at 40 years old that I am as mesmerized and um, sort of swept up into the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what that means for our world. Why is that the case? Why do I still think that this is good news 40 years in our text today is perhaps the main reason why. Jesus offers us a surprise. It's a, a preemptive word he offers of peace in the face of the jeers of his enemies. Jesus says, quote, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The people, the text tells us, they stood watching The rulers stood sneering. The soldiers stood mocking. The criminal hung insulting. And this ball of energy that was held up in the crowds, in the soldiers, with the rulers, and with that criminal became laser-focused on this one idea, the most basic of human instincts. Save yourself. Save yourself. Quote, he saved others. If he's the Messiah, the chosen one, let him save himself. Another. And if you're king, save yourself. And once again, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. What's the driving force? In all of human history if it's not this one phrase save yourself and Jesus looks at that he hears these voices coming at him as he hangs on the tree and he says they don't even know what Jesus introduces on the scene at his crucifixion is a moral anomaly I mean it's unprecedented It's not simply a personal response by a Galilean peasant toward this gnarly convergence of Roman Empire on the one hand and a Jewish mob on the other. No. It's bigger than that. The crucifixion is a corrective to all of our ideas and our assumptions about who God is and how power works and how justice is accomplished and which direction goodness flows. In the world. When we look at the cross, when we look at opposition, when we look at threat, when we look at death, we do everything we can to save ourselves. Of course we do. It's our instinct. We survive. We are strong. We hold with an iron grip, with white knuckles, on anything that can give us ballast and stability in the face of our threats and fears. That's what we do. But a light goes on at the cross. An ancient mischief is revealed here. Jesus knows and sees that humanity is stuck in an ignorant cycle. We seek to save ourselves, even at the cost of others. It's what we do. We've made our peace with what seems like the necessary sacrifices of life. But Jesus on the cross and through the cross stares into the face of the passive crowds who, without any risk to themselves, have shouted moments ago, crucify him. He stares into the faces of these fragile leaders, political and religious. He hears their sneers. He looks at the soldiers, those who are tied to an allegiance and a duty to a state that has done great violence. And he takes on their jeers. And now even a criminal hanging next to him, echoing the same dark philosophy, save yourself. He stares and he knows that what he hears is ignorant. What Jesus hears is humanity's empty response to this dangerous world that we share. Self-saving has always been the shape of humanity's hedging. Humanity has looked at its great achievements at self-saving, at self-protecting, at self-preserving. And we've also surveyed its attending costs. We've looked upon its walls, we've looked upon its tanks, its bombs, its fortresses, its skyscrapers, its markets, and its technology, all designed to protect us, to save us, and humanity thinks, isn't that something? But at the cross, we catch or begin to catch a glimpse of what Jesus sees and what we find is not the bright something that we thought we saw, but we discover, at the core, there is a terrible nothing. At the cross, we remember, though, that God is in the business of creating something out of nothing. Jesus stares into the face of the dark nothing of humanity's response to danger. And like God, who in the creation poem says to the darkness, let there be light. And so Jesus looks into the dark disdain of the crowds and the rulers and the soldiers and the criminal, only he says, God forgive. And like the appearance of the light and the dark, a human soul softens and opens up in the face of this and glances upon the mystery revealed here. A criminal's voice cries out and says, remember me. Jesus, remember me. This criminal is having an epiphany. A light is going on. He's seeing through the cross the instinct of the human race, the instinct to save itself at the cost of another. He's seeing that the ways that we try to clean this up by stamping God Or state, or any other respectable association onto it. He, with Jesus, feels this darkness in his body as he hangs on a tree. And he he hears the saccharine attempts at self justification and all the other groups that just stand and stare. He declares, This man has done nothing wrong. In essence, he's saying, There's no cleaning this up. There's no way to justify this. There's no narrative loop that you can tell yourself that will make sense of this. This way is bankrupt. This solution is no solution. This isn't something. This is nothing. But Jesus creates something out of nothing. Jesus looks at the nothing of the the sneering, He looks at the nothing of the critics. He looks at the nothing of his persecutors, and he speaks life into it and light into it. He says, Father, forgive them. And in that moment, history turns on its axis, and we now are living in a world where most of us are influenced by this idea. We don't even realize it. Even those who aren't affiliated with or associated with Jesus or the church that bears Jesus' name, have this ringing in their ears, this idea of forgiveness in the face of violence, of grace and peace in the face of persecution and threat. This idea that the way we break through this ignorant cycle of tit-for-tat and violence with retaliation is by tapping into this mystery— revealed at the cross, that God is love, that God is mercy, that God isn't retributive, that God doesn't just use, roll up his sleeves or her sleeves and, like, come down hard on us. God is not like that. And that's the corrective of the cross. We would have expected, if you have all power, you're going to use that power to mold the world in the way you want it, to force the people that you've created to comply. N.T. Wright says, yeah, we ask the question, what's, what's up with cancer, what's up with tsunamis, if God's in, in control and if Christ is really the king? But the, the answer's in the cross. The cross shows us the vulnerability of God's power and how God uses God's power. God doesn't use God's power to strong-arm us, pull our arm behind our back until we cry, uncle. God woos us, and that's because God is into persuasion as an act of love, not proselytization as an act of power. God seeks to win our imaginations. God seeks to invite us and woo us into the intrinsic beauty of love, and after all, that is the witness of our church. That is the witness we bear of Jesus, that God is love. History in fact, has tilted on its axis with this moment and with this revelation. We're no longer trying to please the boss who's got high expectations for us that can bring the hammer down hard. Now we're working with a loving, tender parent who even in the face of disobedience or betrayal or even outright aggression and violence can look at it and say, you don't understand. Is able to absorb that violence and recycle it into something good, into life. At the cross, Jesus takes all of our violence, all of our antagonisms, all of our aggression, all of our angst, all of our um, desire for revenge and retaliation, absorbs it, recycles it, and puts it out the other side and says, there's an invitation here. Do your best. Let it all out. Discharge it all you want and try to baptize it and make yourself feel good about it. But not today. Not here. Not now. Not ever. This is no solution. The only solution is what you see here. This is the only activity. This is the only action. This is the only way of being that's vindicated by the God who is love. Not the instinct to save ourselves but the instinct to use the power and the goodness and the beauty of ourselves for the good of others, even at cost to ourselves. To be able to sacrifice oneself freely for the good of another. To be able to lay one's life down. To be able to see the cycle of history and say, the only way that I'm going to short-circuit that, the only way I'm going to stop that from moving forward is by imagining things different. Looking at my conflict in a different way, looking at the world's conflicts through the lens of a different imagination. I went and saw the film The Irishman this week, and uh, you know, four and a half hours later, I um, walked out and it put me in a. I was like it was a few days before my birthday, and I was very contemplative after that movie because it's you know maybe one of Scorsese's last films. And it is a reflection on aging. And, you know, what is our life? And what makes a life good? And how do we do this weird math of negotiating our allegiances? And what do we tell ourselves about what our lives mean? And the character that Robert De Niro plays at the end of his life is sitting down with his children. And he he is estranged from them. And he's doing his best to explain his sort of north star his moral compass like what has guided him up to this point and it's not very articulate i mean he's only able to sort of blubber something about i just had to do what i had to do to protect you and the disconnect in his children's faces as what fills their mind and their heart is all the ways they were hurt by his quote-unquote protection and this is the indictment of the cross The cross looks at the ways we try to protect ourselves, that we try to save ourselves, that we even try to save the ones we love. And it points out the cost. And it says the cost is not worth it. And like De Niro's daughters, we stare back, or it stares at us, rather, and says, there's no cost that was worth that. So this morning, I invite you to consider these questions. What darkness are you facing right now that the forgiving light of the cross could come into and shine light upon? What, what's producing gloom in your imagination? I mean, you think of Jesus on the cross, he is at a point where any of us, if we were facing the same, would feel overwhelmed by the gloom. We'd feel overwhelmed by the darkness. In fact, Jesus, I think on the cross, we have every indication. He did at one point feel overwhelmed. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's able to gather himself. Just like he was tempted in the desert with that similar thing. You know, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the Messiah, do this, do that. Test this, test that. Build this, build that. Prove yourself. Here he hears those same voices. If you're the Messiah, if you're the king, save yourself. And what does he remember in that moment? All these tempting voices, what does he remember? When he was in the wilderness, it was the voice of God's love. When he was in the waters of baptism and he came out and he heard the the declaration from heaven, you are my son in whom I find great pleasure. That was his ballast. The most important question you'll ever answer is, who am I? And the Christian tradition teaches us that we are fundamentally, at our essence, at our core, beloved of God. And it's when we tap into that that we can take the overwhelming circumstances of our lives, we can take the overwhelming strain of the relationships of our lives, and we can face them with a creativity that looks in the darkness and says, let there be light that looks at a dark relationship and says, let there be light, that looks at a dark world, and even though it feels overwhelming and painstaking to to sit through and endure, we can say, together and as individuals, let there be light. And the light that shines at this moment is the light of forgiveness. It short-circuits the conflict. It short-circuits. You can't do the way of forgiveness if you're an either-or thinker if you just think in terms of black and white, either or, if you have binary thinking that needs someone to be right, someone wrong, someone pure, someone impure, you will never be able to practice and sustain the way of forgiveness. The binary thinking and the binary God would have looked at the evil and said, let's wipe this out. Let's deal with this once and for all. But Jesus is revealing to us, God is tender and patient. What could God be? but tender and patient from what we understand of the length of human history and the troubles of human history. And Jesus is showing us at the cross definitively how God uses God's power. Christ is king. That's our confession. But how is Christ king? Christ is king through cruciform love. An open hand, not a closed fist. Vulnerability, not the self-preservation instincts of that save yourself mentality. What darkness are you facing that the light of forgiveness could enter into and alter how you're approaching it? fill you with confidence, fill you with a new energy to approach it with a soft heart. Here's another question. What self-preserving instinct might the light of God's mercy shine upon this morning so that it's shown to be ignorant? I've thought a lot about this. I mean, maybe it's because I'm 40, I'm like very reflective, but I've thought about my own instincts. How do I protect myself? You know, what I want my 40s to be about is to really be in touch with how I feel about things and what I want in life. And I also want my 40s to be about deconstructing all my little ego protections, all the ways I try to, to hedge so as not to be hurt. I don't wanna be De Niro at the end of his life looking at his children going, I just did my best. Here's another question. How many hearts in this room might soften and might open up to God's mercy like the repentant criminal who is done with self-saving and finally says simply, remember me? How many hearts in this room Could come to the end of that self saving and just say, Remember me. Have mercy on me. Help me. Save me. Short circuit everything that is undermining love in my life. I know some of you are here this morning and that's where you are. And the invitation of the gospel, of the good news, is to say, That's possible. Your heart can be softened. Your heart can be open. And that will be a portal through which the good news of this forgiveness, the good news of this peace, the good news of this love, which we see at the cross, can come spilling out into the world, one person, one story at a time. May God give us mercy on Christ the King Sunday to think about what kind of king do we worship? What kind of kingdom do we serve? And what does it mean to be a citizen of that kingdom rather than the save-yourself darkness of the world that we live in? Maybe we can turn to God together and say, God, save us. Help us. Remember us. Amen.